AgriPulse Deep Dive is brought to you by the National Corn Growers Association and low-carbon corn-based ethanol. Corn ethanol is the transportation fuel solution available to combat climate change today. Learn more about the climate benefits of corn ethanol at ncga.com. Electricity in rural America have had a good relationship for quite a while. Since the Rural Electrification Act of 1936, power lines have crisscrossed the landscape, allowing farmers and ranchers the opportunity to rely on something other than the fireplace to heat their homes. That mammoth undertaking has also been used as a rallying cry for all sorts of rural improvement efforts, most recently the push to improve rural broadband. As two products of farm country who grew up in homes with light switches rather than candles, Ben and I can both attest to the benefits of rural electrification. But a looming push in the transportation sector might test the farmer's fondness for wattage. Electric vehicles are by no means new, but a fresh wave of enthusiasm has them front and center in Washington, and at a critical time too, as infrastructure legislation is on the agenda. But is that enthusiasm going to be enough to win over the hearts and wallets of consumers? And where do biofuel producers fit in? I'm Ben Nully. And I'm Spencer Chase. We'll cover that and more in the fourth episode of our deep dive on biofuels, Electric Slide. drive you five miles for a penny. A vehicle that needs no petrol, just a battery. And that takes the press of a button to start, the squeeze of a lever to stop. That needs no license, no road tax, and you can drive whether you're 14... What you just heard was part of a 1985 European electric car commercial. The car the company was advertising looked like a one-person go-kart that used a single car battery. The once thought of futuristic fantasy vehicle has come much farther than what you heard about there. Looking back, most people today think the 1980s or 70s is when the buzz of electric cars started. But interest actually began over a hundred years ago in Hungary, the Netherlands, and the U.S., according to the Department of Energy. Any guesses on where the first successful electric car debuted in the United States? Okay, brace yourselves on this one. It's smack dab in the middle of corn country around 1890 in Des Moines, Iowa. Yes, that's right. You heard me correctly. In Iowa, one of the nation's top corn producing states. According to the Energy Department, Scottish chemist William Morrison of Des Moines built a glorified six-passenger electrified wagon topping speeds of 14 miles per hour. But like the biofuels industry, this one too had struggles of its own. Through the early 1900s, electric car popularity started to increase until the Great Depression began in the 1930s. Then for nearly three decades, the industry saw very little, if any, advancement in technology. It wasn't until 1973, during the Arab oil embargo, which caused oil and gas prices to skyrocket, that the U.S. began seriously looking into alternative fuel sources to lower America's dependence on foreign oil. This sparked interest from Congress, 
to pass the Electric and Hybrid Vehicle Research Development and Demonstration Act of 1976. It authorized the Department of Energy to conduct research and development in electric and hybrid vehicles. However, the car still did not take off until the 1990s when people started becoming concerned about how tailpipe emissions impacted the environment. But even then, it still had setbacks. Those environmental conversations are still being talked about today, especially in the Biden White House and Congress as both work to pass an infrastructure bill. President Biden's $2.7 trillion infrastructure bill, the American Jobs Plan, included $174 billion to be used for developing electric vehicle charging stations and other needed infrastructure. Joel Levin is executive director of Plug In America, an electric vehicle advocacy group. He says the $174 billion is just a portion of what's needed to revolutionize the industry. That's a lot of money, but we're talking about completely reconfiguring one of the great industries in the United States, you know, basically changing out, you know, every auto manufacturing plant in the country, changing their whole supply chains, building out this new um, network of fueling stations, changing all the cars that people are driving, you know, over a period of 10 or 15 years. So I would say that that money, while it's a lot, it's, it's intended to support a lot of private investment that's going on uh, and that that's, that's encouraging other money to come to the table as well. So for the vehicles, for example, we're expecting that there's going to be um, an expansion or extension of the, the federal tax credit for buying an EV, but it's not going to give you a free car. It's going to give you, you know, for example, the tax credit now is $7,500. So let's say if they kept it at that, at that price, it's a lot of money, but it's still the intention of it is to encourage someone to lay down a bunch of their own money uh, on buying a car as well. And so for charging infrastructure, it's kind of the same thing where we expect it's going to be some mix of a public and private partnership that the federal government contributes money and private you know, networks or utilities or cities or states are putting in money as well. So it's a lot of money, but it's, it's just a portion of what's going to be required for really this kind of revolution in how we move around. Growth Energy CEO Emily Score says her organization continues to talk to policymakers on Capitol Hill about how biofuels can play an immediate role in reducing greenhouse gas emissions. She says Biden's plan should have included more money for her industry. I think in, in what the administration presented, it's really a lost opportunity. Um, they could have done a lot more and they should have done more with biofuels. And that's why I think you saw a bit of a tepid response from much of agriculture. And so we're having really good conversations and, and good receptivity with our champions who very much support, all right, moving forward, we've got to make sure that there's a bit of a level playing field for biofuels and ethanol. This also has biofuel lawmakers like Republican Senators Chuck Grassley and Joni Ernst of Iowa frustrated because only $15 billion has been designated for research and development for bio-based products, which includes biofuels. Ernst says Biden has raised some eyebrows. It's very concerning, again, because of the promise to support biofuels. But when you look at the the heavy-handed way in which they are really pushing electric vehicles, you know, it, it really raises the, the question, how much does he want to support biofuels? When you see that in the infrastructure package as outlined by President Biden and his administration, there is actually more money in the infrastructure package 
for electric vehicles than there actually is for our roads and waterways. So this infrastructure package is less about our roads, our bridges, our waterways, and more about climate change and pushing electric vehicles on the American people. But Ernst's neighbor to the North Democratic Senator Amy Klobuchar of Minnesota, in another top biofuel-producing state, says Biden understands the need for biofuels in helping reduce carbon emissions. So in addition to electric cars, which are good, I would argue uh, that we also have to note that the quickest way to reduce emissions from our transportation sector is by selling more more low carbon renewable fuels. And a recent Harvard study actually demonstrated that using corn ethanol in place of gasoline cuts greenhouse gas emissions by almost half. Um, So that is the argument I'm making for to Secretary Buttigieg uh, to the White House, um, because I think Senator Ernst, Joni Ernst and I have this bill called Renewable Fuel Infrastructure Investment and Market Expansion Act that would authorize $500 million for new fuel pumps or conversion of existing fuel pumps for higher blends like E15. Um, And when they did a similar program to this back in 2015, nearly 5,000 new blender pumps were installed at over 1,400 fueling stations. So it made a big difference. So that's the case. And I don't think we should look at this at all as a battle between biofuels and uh, electric vehicles. Um, Because if we want to decarbonize the transportation sector, then we have to do both. So my case I'm making them is fine, great, do electric vehicles, but do biofuels at the same time, because that's going to give your fastest bang for the buck right now. Levin says last quarter EV sales were about 3% of new car sales in the U.S. He says that's a big jump from the previous year when the number was around 2%. However, out of total vehicles on the road today, electric vehicles are less than 1%. Well, that's a small fraction right now. He says adoption is growing rapidly because of several factors. It's partly uh, supply of vehicles. Uh, so there's a number of uh, really great cars that have come out uh, in the last few months. Uh, it's you know Tesla, that's the biggest seller of EVs, has ramped up the production, more, made more vehicles available. And I think EVs, I think their moment has kind of come. I think the public is, is aware of the cars. You know, we used to have these long discussions where everybody thought, oh, these are just golf carts that won't go on the freeway. And, you know, we don't really have those discussions anymore. I think people appreciate that they're, they're really exciting, well-engineered cars and that there's an environmental value to them and they're fun to drive. And there's a lot of other benefits as well as a consumer. It's not just like, you know, I'm eating my broccoli because it's good for me. Several auto manufacturers, including Ford, General Motors, Toyota, Stellantis, and others, have made commitments to increase the production of electric vehicles over the next decade. According to Motor Trend, the number of EV options is expected to rise from about 16 to 40 in 2025 as brands develop new models. General Motors is aiming to halt production of all gas and diesel-powered cars, trucks, vans, and SUVs by 2035 with a $27 billion commitment. The company is partnering with the Environmental Defense Fund to develop a vision of an all-electric future and an aspiration to eliminate tailpipe emissions from light-duty vehicles by 2035. GM's overall plan is to become carbon neutral by 2040. Ford has committed $22 billion in electric vehicle production through 2025, according to Car and Driver. 
The company has developed the 2021 Mustang Mach-E crossover, but it's working on F-150 trucks. However, it hasn't said when it will change over to an all-electric passenger vehicle fleet like GM. Both companies are trying to compete with Tesla, which has been attempting to accelerate the electric vehicle industry since 2003. The company produced and delivered half a million vehicles alone in 2020. Most recently, however, they have had a few setbacks in China as customers have complained about quality and safety. That's according to the South China Morning Post. Jeff Moody is Vice President of Government Relations for the American Fuel and Petrochemical Manufacturers. He says his members understand EVs will be part of the energy mix moving forward. Uh, we're going to need all forms of energy and all forms of vehicle technology to, to meet the world's growing energy needs. So uh, EVs are certainly going to be part of that. Um, we believe that we can get substantial and less expensive carbon reductions out of the internal combustion engine and using our fuels and I would say liquid fuels more generally, including biofuel. So, you know, say AFPM, we represent something like 20% of the ethanol industry in our membership. And, you know, if you've been watching uh, company investments on in the refining industry for the last couple of years, you'll, you'll see a big shift into renewable diesel, uh, for instance, and you know, folks see a lot of, a lot of upside opportunity there. So, I mean, we, we see opportunities to get lower carbon fuel through the refining system and, you know, we're, we're happy to have this conversation. So yeah, I, I would, I would hope that we have common cause with the biofuels industry to show that we can be part of the, the future and be part of the solution to, um, to some of these challenges. Moody argues all vehicle carbon emissions need to be looked at on a well-to-wheels basis. You know, it's not just, uh, you know, the, the source of electricity is an important con- uh, component. Uh, you know, also say battery manufacturing, there's a uh, massive upfront you know, kind of carbon deficit because battery manufacturing is so much more greenhouse gas intensive um, for an electric vehicle than for a traditional vehicle. So you have to drive a lot of miles in order to pay that back. So, yeah, I mean, we would we would say that we need an apples to apples comparison here. We don't think policy is recognizing that at this point. When pressed about electric vehicles indirect carbon footprint by using coal to generate electric power, Levin says the production of EVs is less than the petroleum industry. You know, there's a a vast a global um, network of, of you know, the, the, the production and shipping and refining and distribution of petroleum has an enormous environmental impact. So it's not like you're comparing those things against nothing. You're comparing it against the impact of petroleum uh, and the air pollution as well. Um, so that's one thing. Second, so coal, obviously, coal has a huge footprint as well, but use of coal is dropping really rapidly right now in the U.S. Um, the, uh, the bulk of new uh, electricity coming online in the country is renewables, uh, is solar and wind and other types of renewable energy. Um, and so I think I said in the beginning, our, our goal is to see EVs powered by clean energy, uh, not by coal. And, and that's very much what's happening. So. I don't think your uh, coal is really part of the equation. I think it's it's sort of, you know, kind of going away. And then lithium, you are correct. So batteries um, are, they have lithium and nickel and cobalt and a number of other minerals in them. And we're gonna have to mine a lot of those, um, those minerals. Some of it can be gotten through recycling, but some of it's gonna require new mining. And it's really, really important that that mining be done in an environmentally and socially sustainable way. So that's that's part of the story. 
According to the Environmental Protection Agency, in 2019, greenhouse gas emissions totaled 6.5 million metric tons. The transportation sector has been the largest contributor since 2017. In terms of displacing petroleum from the liquid fuel transportation sector, which the biofuels industry heavily relies on, Jeremy Martin, Director of Fuels Policy at the Union of Concerned Scientists, says it will take a few years. So it does take a little while to gather momentum. But, you know, with the scenarios that we're talking about, you know, thinking about 2035 as a target to get to 100% EV sales, you know, if we can do that, we'd be looking at uh, gasoline consumption could fall by a quarter by 2030, could fall by half by 2035 could be three quarters by 2040 and and effectively be done using gasoline by by 2050. You know, I think that's some, you know, based on our kind of read of, you know, what you could accomplish with strong standards. And and really, that's that's also, you know, what you need to do to global temperature rise to one and a half degrees C and avoid the worst consequences of climate change. But Martin still thinks there's a role E15 blended gasoline can play in the transition. If you think about you know, E15 for three quarters of today's gasoline use, you know, you do the math, that's actually more ethanol than we're using today. So, you know, I think that's the way that I look at it is, is that even as we're cutting gasoline consumption, you know, we can, we can keep a stable market for, for ethanol and and for feedstocks, you know, by, by ramping up these blends, you know, and really doing those two things in a, in a complementary way, because, you know, I think we want to avoid you know, booms and busts like we've seen in the past. And so really, you know, if we think about uh, E15, you know, that takes us well past 2030 and then think about high octane gasoline after that and and some mid-level blends. And I think there is an opportunity to, you know, to really have electricity and ethanol, as I said, not, not fight over a tiny slice of the pie, but work together to get us off petroleum as quickly as possible. The shift by automakers and the increasing push from the administration puts biofuel groups in a tight spot regarding which side they join. They could either join the petroleum industry and argue how the transportation fuel sector will be the dominant vehicle on the road for years to come, or join the electric vehicle movement and jump on the carbon reduction bandwagon. Up next, Spencer looks at which path biofuels groups are likely to take. AgriPulse Deep Dive is brought to you by the National Corn Growers Association and low-carbon corn-based ethanol. Ethanol, as a transportation fuel, is uniquely positioned to immediately combat climate change and clear the air we all breathe. Affordable, readily available, corn-based ethanol provides consumers with a renewable low-carbon solution today and for decades to come. Learn more about the ethanol policies and priorities of NCGA at ncga.com. Making friends in Washington is hard. That's not just the observation of an introverted millennial. It's a well-known axiom of this city. It's a transient area. People come and go with some regularity. It's also a city where people come longing to either gain power or exert it. So someone who is your friend one minute can be your enemy the next. Former President Harry Truman once famously quipped that if you want a friend in Washington, get a dog. The struggle to build and maintain friendships isn't just something people experience in their personal lives in Washington. Finding friends and allies in policy endeavors can be tricky too. Biofuels policy is no stranger to this issue. 
the oil industry, was its friend on the initial efforts to secure the renewable fuel standard, but now the two sectors often find themselves at odds over the future of the program. The environmental community was friendly in the development of early biofuels policy too, but also expresses frustration over land use, as we discussed in our last episode. And then there's Capitol Hill, where the industry knows who some of its strongest supporters are, but that doesn't mean it isn't always on the hunt to grow that group. But there's an upcoming debate that will test the ability of biofuels groups to make new friends and keep them. Everyone from green groups to petroleum mainstays knows growth in electric vehicles is coming. But the question for the biofuels industry is to how to manage relationships on Capitol Hill, in the administration, and on the open road. Brian Jennings with the American Coalition for Ethanol says it's a big debate within the sector right now. What path is the wise path for us to take? Do we join forces with um, refiners to protect uh, liquid transportation fuel? Or do we join forces with those groups that want to decarbonize transportation fuel, including electric vehicle advocates? There's a growing feeling among many of the biofuels industry's advocates in Washington and across the country that a partnership with electric vehicles might be the way to go. The position is far from unanimous, but Jennings thinks it's the right approach. As much of a bitter pill as it might be for some of our folks to swallow, the the future roadmap is really clear. The winners in the marketplace are going to be fuels that reduce greenhouse gases compared to gasoline, without question. Throughout the course of our reporting for this series, we heard a similar line of thinking from many others in the biofuel space. It might seem a little counterintuitive. For one, ethanol and biodiesel aren't blended with electricity in their path to fuel tanks. They're blended with gasoline and diesel. So it would seem biofuel and oil groups have a natural relationship in an effort to maintain the prevalence of the internal combustion engine for the foreseeable future. That's what the oil industry thinks, according to American Petroleum Institute lobbyist Patrick Kelly. When we look at uh, a future set of rules from the federal government that look at CO2 impact of transportation and liquid fuels having a space to compete there, um, we want to work with biofuels to compete with those electric vehicles because competition provides the best market solution for, uh, for consumers. So here the biofuels industry sits, with the oil industry publicly proclaiming a desire to work together. The industry has also made some private overtures as well, but no one we talked to cared to get into specifics. However, John Doggett with the National Corn Growers Association says past dialogue has involved some non-starters for his side of the conversation. I pick up the phone and call the oil guys on a pretty regular basis, every six, five, six months. And yeah, they, they want us to help them on the on the EV front. But you know what? The the, the conditions, the preconditions are we get rid of the of uh, the RFS and and that we abandon any and all mandates. We're not gonna sign off on that. You know, this is a the oil industry is a is a multi-billion dollar industry, and you know, they want us to use our grassroots to solve their problem. Well, you know what? They could have solved their problem a long time ago had they just gone ahead and done what they said that they would do, and that is use more ethanol in the fuel supply. Full disclosure, NCGA is a sponsor of this podcast series. 
When we would ask during interviews about conversations between the two sectors, we would inevitably be told that biofuels and oil industry advocates talk to their friends on the other side all the time on various policy issues where they actually agree. But why is the biofuels industry looking for new friends when it comes to the future of the very existence of the gas tank they're filling? In a word, decarbonization. Emily Score with Growth Energy tells us both electric vehicles and biofuels share the mutual goal of emissions reduction. We're both solutions. We both need to be utilized. The real beauty of biofuels is we, we're an immediate solution. We can be used in today's auto fleet. We immediately reduce greenhouse gas emissions. You know, a quick move like something from an E10 as a standard fuel to an E15 standard as a fuel, I mean, that's going to make a material impact on our greenhouse gas emissions. And again, you can do it in today's auto fleet with today's infrastructure, and it's affordable for all communities. You'll hear that a lot if you listen to different people make the argument. Biofuels today may be electric vehicles down the road. And in the meantime, why not pump some more biofuels? We're here to stay for a, for a, for a long time. We're going to continue to be the dominant vehicle. You should do everything that you possibly can to make that vehicle and that engine as clean burning as it possibly can. And if you do, you're going to be using more biofuels. We, we will have a greater share of a shrinking gas tank, but we will have a greater share of that gas tank. Jeff Cooper with the Renewable Fuels Association makes a similar point. Setting any EV conversations aside, there are a whole bunch of internal combustion engines on the road right now to be decarbonized. We know that we're going to be burning hundreds of billions of gallons of liquid fuels in internal combustion engines around the world for many decades to come. And we believe strongly that biofuels and, and ethanol in particular uh, can and should be playing a role in reducing the carbon impacts of those liquid fuels uh, over the long term. We have a product that is available today uh, at large scale uh, that could be doing more. We could be using more ethanol uh, to, to get some immediate greenhouse gas reductions from our transportation uh, vehicle fleet. But as anyone familiar with association politics will tell you, a CEO's opinion is one thing. The opinion of the membership is ultimately what's going to set the agenda. Score tells us she hears some frustrations about EV policy among her membership. But after some conversation, they become a little more willing to see the benefits of a potential partnership. Yes, there's kind of a, a, a knee-jerk sentiment, but when I kind of talk to our members, our supporters, our partners on the ground in the Midwest, more than anything, they're actually really excited about being part of a climate conversation. And so there's, there's actually some optimism and excitement. And when we talk about, all right, so the importance of us being a constructive participant, us having a seat at the table, we're not really advancing if we're just disparaging EVs, People actually really get that, and they get on board pretty quickly. That's been Cooper's experience, too. When our rank-and-file membership um, and investors in the industry and farmers really take the time uh, to examine this issue holistically and in a comprehensive way, um, they come away understanding, hey, we're not going anywhere in the ethanol business. Uh, we are going to be around long-term, and we've got a, a, a major role to play, an important role to play, uh, in this transition long term. One thing folks like Score and Cooper have on their side in the debate? It's not too hard to convince ethanol supporters to steer clear of the oil industry. The two sectors have been at opposite ends of almost every policy debate over the last 20 years. 
go sit in on oral arguments for one of the dozens of RFS cases that have been filed over the years. It's often one side versus the other, with the EPA on different sides of the table depending on the issue of the day. It's a dichotomy Cooper says will work in their favor as they build support in their industry for a decarbonizing approach. The ethanol industry and, and farmers are not interested in being a, a front for the oil industry in any kind of war against electric vehicles. Um, we're not interested in that. We don't think it's in the best interest of rural America. It's not in the best interest of the farming community, certainly not in the best interest of, of the ethanol industry. For Aces Jennings, it's an issue of simple math. Now, politics is all about addition and subtraction, and maybe you get some marginal addition by joining forces with refiners, um, but it's not critical mass. I think, I think joining forces with all of the different low-carbon technologies that are out there on, on a path that embraces the idea that in any transportation um, fuel that reduces greenhouse gases is going to be a winner in the marketplace, multiplies our political allies and our, and our chances of success. And, and so that's the route that, that we intend to take. Let's take a brief aside here. We've talked about the issue of ethanol and electrification, but what about biodiesel? Simply stated, they're not all that concerned. I don't see the biodiesel industry um, trying to advocate policy that would, you know, somehow prevent electrification of the fleet. Joe Job is the former CEO of the National Biodiesel Board. He currently runs a consulting firm that touches on various aspects of the renewable fuels industry. Broadly speaking, gasoline and diesel have different uses. Gasoline is used in the light-duty passenger motor vehicle fleet, while diesel is prevalent in the heavy-duty truck and trailer segment of the industry. There are some exceptions to that rule, but for the most part, you're only putting diesel in your tank if you're pushing or pulling something. It's the different uses and different demands of the fuel that make Job comfortable with where diesel and biodiesel by extension stand in the EV conversation. It's going to be a while before you see electric semi-trucks. As it stands right now, I mean, battery technology is improving all the time, but as it stands right now and for the foreseeable future, you would you would have to fill the whole semi-trailer up full of batteries and you wouldn't have any room for the beer or salsa or whatever you're hauling. That's not to say companies are standing pat and have no plans to explore moving on from diesel. As Job mentioned, research is ongoing. Amazon has a stated goal to have 10,000 electric delivery trucks on the road by next year. Equipment mainstays like John Deere and Case IH are both working on electrification projects. Tesla is also working on a semi with current plans to build five trucks per week at a facility in Nevada. The Biden administration infrastructure package Ben mentioned? It has funding aimed at electrifying 20% of the nation's yellow school bus fleet. Make no mistake about it, the investment money is aimed at electrification. Consumer preference, on the other hand? A recent poll conducted by Morning Consult for the Renewable Fuels Association found 63% of respondents supported cash incentives such as tax credits or rebates for purchasing an electric vehicle. But 65% supported similar incentives for a flex fuel vehicle that could burn E85. 
They were also split on a hypothetical mandate that all vehicles sold in the U.S. be electric by 2035. 42% either strongly or somewhat supported the idea, 45% either strongly or somewhat opposed it, another 14% said they didn't know. But 74% also agreed that EVs are too expensive for everyday consumers and 79% agree the source of electricity for the vehicle is important when considering an overall environmental impact. What will those results look like in a decade? How will you fill or charge up in the future? Is the biofuel and electric vehicle partnership possible? And what to do with a legislative future for renewable fuels? We'll take a look at what lies ahead for the future of the renewable fuels industry next week in our fifth and final episode of our deep dive on biofuels. For Ben Nully, I'm Spencer Chase. AgriPulse Deep Dive is sponsored by the National Corn Growers Association and Low Carbon Corn-Based Ethanol. <laughs>